This morning I want to talk about the church as the hope of the world. For the last few weeks, if you've been with us, as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, we've been learning about Jesus as the great high priest. The author of Hebrews, over and over again, using Old Testament temple language to describe for us the preeminence or the superiority of Jesus the Christ. And it's in chapter 10 of Hebrews, as we'll read this morning, that the author switches gears and says, therefore, if Christ is truly the great high priest, therefore, if Christ has truly given us access to the most holy place once and for all, therefore, this is how we live as the people of God, his church. This is how we take this glorious gospel truth and manifest it in the world for the sake of the world, the hope of the world. Because the gospel tells us this, that not only does God reconcile sinners to himself vertically, but that through the power of the gospel, God reconciles sinners to each other horizontally, which is the church. Therefore, church, in light of what we've learned so far in the book of Hebrews, how can we at Coal Ridge be the hope of the world? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, cleansed from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. I'm sure it's no surprise as we read the newspaper, as we turn on the television, as we see the recent surveys in North America that church attendance is in steep decline. You often hear people say that I'm all about God, but I'm not about the church. I'm a spiritual person. But the whole organized religion thing, I gave up on that years ago. And the problem with that sentiment, the problem with that idea is it's the church of Jesus Christ alone that God gave to the world, not to be something we neglect, but to be something that the world runs to as the bearers of the only hope for the brokenness in their lives and the brokenness of our world. And so by looking at Hebrews 10 this morning, I want to answer the question, what is the church called to be in light of our great high priest and the access he has given us to the most holy place, 
What type of church do we need to be here at Coral Ridge so that we can be the very hope of the world? The first thing I want to point out in this passage that we read together is first the priority of the church. The priority of the church that the author of Hebrews gives us here. You see in verse 19, it gives us a clue who the author is writing to. He's not writing to believers and unbelievers. He's not writing to the world in general. It says he's writing to brothers. And the the ancients would use familial language to express the adoption that we share in Jesus Christ. So we know by virtue of him announcing that I'm writing to my brothers, that he's writing to fellow Christians, the church. He's not speaking to believers and non-believers, not speaking to the world in general terms, but he's speaking specifically to the church of Jesus Christ. And it's in verse 25 that he shares emphatically the priority and the irreplaceability of the church of Jesus Christ when the author says to not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Now this idea of meeting together, these two words are actually just one word in the original Greek. It's epi-synagogue. Epi-synagogue, where we get the word synagogue come from. It's the assembly or the congregation of believers. But just as the epicenter is the greater center, the epicynagogue is the greater synagogue where not only Jews were welcome, but Gentiles and Jews were welcomed together as God through Jesus Christ creates this beautiful new community. And this idea of meeting together in verse 25 that the author says, do not neglect is far more than coming for an hour to worship on Sunday morning. It means a deep, intimate connection. A connection that comes through both worship and intimate fellowship. And the author of Hebrews is saying, do not neglect this. But why? Because he says in verse 22, that together we now through Christ have the privilege of drawing near drawing near to the presence of God. Now you might think to yourself, well that seems redundant because in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we always have the ability to draw near to God, right? I mean, why is the author of Hebrews telling us to not neglect meeting together, to not neglect drawing near to the presence of God? Can I draw near to the presence of God on a mountain? Can I draw near to the presence of God on the beach? I mean, every time I open up my Bible for personal worship, I'm drawing near to the presence of God, and there is truth in that. And so it begs the question, why would the author of Hebrews need to remind us to draw near to the presence of God? It's like reminding somebody to breathe. But that's what makes this passage so profound. What the author, do not miss this, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that, yes, although you can experience the presence of God individually, you will never be able to experience the fullness of God alone. It is in the context of worship and fellowship. It is in the context of the community of faith that alone you can experience the fullness of God, that there will be dimensions and aspects of God that you will never experience if you live your life in isolation. 
And this is the priority. Yes, you can experience the presence of God on a beach or on a mountain or in your quiet time by your pool, but you will never be able to experience the fullness of God without this, this precious community that God has saved us into. Look at all the plurality of language. There is not one I or you in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence that he's opened up for us since we have a great high priest. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. There's no I. There's no you. The community of faith is being called in light of Christ opening up the way to the most holy place. The next words that come out of the author's mouth is let us do this together. He could have easily said, you go do this. Go do it by yourself. Experience God by yourself. But instead he says, let us, we, together, we do this together. Listen to me, there is no replacing the church of Jesus Christ. It is the beautiful community that he has saved us to. With all of its messiness and with all of its brokenness, this is what God's plan has been from the very beginning. It is not God's plan B, it is God's plan A because there are things that you have experienced in life that I have never experienced. And therefore, there are ways that you have experienced and encountered God that you need to share with me. And there are things that I have gone through in life that you've never gone through and dimensions and experiences with God that you have never shared and I need to share them with you so that together as one body we experience the fullness of God and it only makes sense because the church in the New Testament is also called the body of Christ. How in the world can we as Christians be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ without the body of Christ. It doesn't make sense. I need the body unified, not broken and divided. I need this intimate connection to grow into the likeness and the fullness of Jesus Christ. He transforms us through community. It is the priority of the church as the hope of the world. But the second thing I, we see here in this passage is not only the priority of this church and not neglecting our community together, but we also see, secondly, the character of the church. What does this church look like? What is the church supposed to look like in light of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, a few things I want to point out concerning the character and nature of Christ's church. Well, the first thing I want to point out in verse 24, it says, let us not let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. That phrase, stir each other up, in some translations you might have spur one another on. It literally means to irritate. You might say the church is often good at irritating people. But it's not that type of irritation. It's meant in the positive sense. It's meant in the sense that causes growth and causes sanctification you see, what the author is saying, when we stir or we spur, we are irritating a person with the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. It means that we are called often to be messy with our neighbor and with our fellow brother and sister, that we're able to confront each other with truth, even if it hurts. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have two or three people in your life that at any given point in time they can irritate you. You've opened up your life to a point where you welcome 
being spurred on, being stirred up, being irritated, even if it hurts. You see, in our culture that tells us, you do you and I'll do me, the church of Jesus Christ is called to an entirely different paradigm where no, where we are able to say, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, and I have people in my life, even when it's uncomfortable and it hurts, that can always speak truth into my life. So I ask you again, do you have people in your life that are able to stir you up, spur you on, irritate you, speak truth into your life? But not only are we called to stir and to spur, but also in verse 25, it says, encouraging one another all the more. Do you see the day drawing near? You see, this is the balance of Christianity. We not only irritate and spur and stir, but we're also called to encourage. That word encourage there means to, to walk along someone with a, spirit of, with, with, with a spirit of humility, with a spirit of grace and love. To walk, by, to walk along someone with an empathetic heart that sometimes you don't even need to open your mouth. They just need to see your tears. But this is the balance. If we're just irritating each other and stirring one another up and spurring each other on, we never see the, the full counsel of God, both the, the truth of God, but also the grace of God. And only a life and a church that is marked by the cross can have both grace and love, truth and grace. Only the Christian can operate with this paradigm that we can stir and spur, but also there's times where we can walk alongside and encourage our brother and sister with an empathetic heart and an empathetic spirit. So the character of the church, we spur, we encourage, but it also tells us that the nature of the true church of Jesus Christ is a church that holds fast. Verse 23, the author says, church, hold fast to the confession of our hope. Remember the context of, of who is receiving this letter. It's the persecuted church. And often they are being tempted in the first century under incredible pressure from the state to give up and to give in. In their cultural moment, as the cultural winds were blowing hard upon them, they were being tempted to walk away, to let go, to not hold fast to their faith. And the author is pleading with them, do not lose hope. Hold fast. It means to not waver, an unswerving devotion to the, to the truth and to the confession of what hope? That Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. That Jesus is the only way to be reconciled. That Jesus is our only hope for the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of our world. And just as they were called as the church, the true church, to hold fast to that hope of our confession. 2,000 years later, we're faced with the same pressure to let go, to not hold fast. And the same calling that was upon the church is upon the church today to hold fast. You will be tempted to let go. There are people even inside the church that will convince you that maybe we need to accommodate to the culture. Maybe we need to back off and not be as dogmatic. Maybe we need to water down our message. And as counterintuitive as it might seem, 
The last thing this world needs is a watered-down gospel and a Jesus that is not presented as the way, the truth, and the life. If we know that Jesus is the only hope for a lost and dying world, far be it from us to not hold him up, to hold on to our confident faith, to hold on to our confession of truth. If we are going to be a church that the world needs, if we are going to be the hope of the world, we need to be a church that is unwavering in their devotion to Christ, giving the world the word of God, nothing more and nothing less. This is what the world needs. <laughs> Lastly, not only do we see the priority of the church and the character and nature of the church, but lastly and most importantly, we see the power, the power that the church has been granted. How in the world do you live this out? How do you live this out with all of the temptations of this world, with all of the pressures that we're facing as the people of God in this cultural moment? How in the world do we actually find the power to live as a church like this for the sake of the world? Well, the answer is found in verse 19. We're told that we have a confidence. We have a confidence to enter the most holy place. You might remember two weeks ago, we talked about this word confidence. It's a, it's a confidence, it's an assurance that we're given as believers that we're able to approach the throne of grace with a frankness, with a, with a bluntness, with no fear, no fear of rejection and no fear of condemnation. This is the confidence we have to approach the Father because of Jesus Christ. And this is what this confidence does for us. It tells you and me in Jesus Christ that we are accepted by the only one who matters. Therefore, I no longer have to go through this life living with the fear of rejection and condemnation. Did you hear that? I, in Jesus Christ, am accepted by the only one who matters. Therefore, I no longer have to live this life with the fear of rejection and condemnation. Do you understand the power that that gives you? Do you understand the power that it gives us as the people of God? That I can actually be myself? That I don't have to put on a show for you to accept me? I've already been accepted. Do you understand what that does for the context of believers? We can actually live transparent lives. We can actually live out this unconditional gospel community together with no fear of rejection or condemnation because I've been accepted by the only one who matters. That's a powerful church that can actually let you in, that you actually can let me in because we've already been accepted. Do you understand the power that this gives us in our mission as a church? That whether the world rejects us or accepts us, whether the world rejects or accepts our message, it doesn't matter that I will boldly preach the truth and love I've already been accepted. Therefore, whether I've been rejected or condemned, it doesn't matter. I've been accepted by the one, the only one who truly matters. Do you understand the power that the church of Jesus Christ has been given? 
This is your identity in Christ. Your identity is not in what you have or how successful you have been. It is not in your, uh, the human approval that you have received. Your acceptance is not based on a spouse or on your children or your employer. If you are found in Jesus this morning, your identity is simply but profoundly an accepted, reconciled, redeemed, forgiven, never rejected, never condemned child of God. And when the church embraces and believes that truth, watch out, that is a powerful church. There was a pastor in Maryland that one day his wife came in and said, I'm done. And he said, what do you mean you're done? I'm done at all of this. I'm done being a wife. I'm done being a mother. I'm done church. I'm done the whole God thing. And she just walked out. And there's the pastor, three kids, abandoned and rejected. His church soon found out. And the church didn't like the idea of a single pastor, so he was quickly dismissed as the church's pastor. The seminary he taught at didn't like the idea of a single pastor training future pastors, and so he was dismissed, and all of a sudden he lost his wife, he lost the the mother to his children, he lost his church, he lost his seminary, and feeling absolutely rejected, dejected, condemned, and dismayed. He gets a call from another local church in town and said, we'd like to have you and your children over for dinner, a few members of our church would like to love on you. And so reluctantly, the pastor and his three children get in the car and they drive up to the house. And the pastor turns around to his kids and he he says, you don't want to be here, do you? And they all nod their head, no. And so he puts the car in reverse. And as soon as he puts the car in reverse, he sees the blinds open. They're caught. They're stuck. And he looks back to his kids and he says, I'm so sorry I've done this to you. We won't be long. And so the pastor and his three kids walk up to the door. And as they open the door, 50 people squeezed into that tiny living room stand to their feet and give the pastor a standing ovation. The pastor said all he could do was weep. But he said it was the beginning of healing because he forgot what it was like to be accepted. Wouldn't it be cool If every time a new person walks through our doors, we gave them a standing ovation, well, that might be impossible. But wouldn't it be amazing if they were accepted and loved in such a way that it felt like a standing ovation? That because we have been accepted unconditionally by our Father, we now can accept others. This can be the message and the ethos of our church, and of our community. There are some here this morning and some watching at home that have been crushed by the weight of rejection and condemnation. And you have spent your entire life looking for the one thing or the one place where you would be accepted and not rejected, accepted and not condemned. And the message of the gospel of the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years has been this. Come and meet the one, Jesus Christ, who fully forgives and fully accepts and never condemns. 
not on the basis of anything you've done or anything you could do, but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. In a few moments, I'm going to pray. And for the first time, you can talk to God and come home. For 2,000 years, he's been accepting sinners home on the basis of the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and there's going to be people in the narthex that would love the opportunity to pray with you and for you so that you can declare for the first time, I'm forever accepted, no longer condemned, a child of God. If you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, what a calling we have to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, to stir one another up as a community of faith, to not neglect the precious community that God has given us, and to hold fast to our confession to a lost and dying world that this is our only hope in life and in death. We have our opportunity to be a preview community, a preview of the coming kingdom, to bring Jesus, the king, to the people and people to the king, to let them know where acceptance and forgiveness, joy and life to the full, both now and forevermore, comes. So Coral Ridge, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's given us confidence, let us go out and be the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that we would be this church, a church that stirs one another up, a church that encourages one another, but a church that holds fast to the confession of our hope for the sake of a lost and dying world. Lord, we need each other. We need this sweet, beautiful, broken community that you have saved us to. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not forsake, we would not neglect the community of faith, this meeting together, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded once again of the sweet fellowship that you've saved us to, that the fullness of God is only experienced in the context of corporate worship and corporate fellowship. So continue to make us a church that you desire, a church that reflects you, the body of Christ. But Lord, if there's someone here someone here that's spent their entire life or listening at home that has never truly felt the embrace of the Father God accepting them. Lord, I pray that they would experience this morning, not on the basis of anything they could do, not on the basis of what they've done, but solely on the basis of what Jesus has done for them, his life, his death, his resurrection who made a way. Jesus was rejected so we would forever be accepted. Jesus was condemned so that we might forever experience the forgiveness and love of the Father. May this day be another day, Lord, where you accept sinners to come home and feel the full acceptance, the acceptance of the Father, the only one who truly matters, and bring them in and save them to this community of faith for the sake and the hope of the world and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.